0: Before I begin today's episode, I want to talk about a special app, podcast app. As most of you know, there's never been more incredible podcasts to listen to. There are so many great podcasts out there. Some you fall in love with right away, others take more time to warm up to. However, most podcast apps treat all of your shows the same. Clogging your phone with downloads of stuff you're only marginally interested in. But with Castro, you can finally choose which shows you want downloaded and ready to listen at the top of your list, as well as letting you pick and choose from your occasional listens in your podcast inbox. This and many other powerful features let you put your listening on autopilot. The app is free to use. You can download it today on the App Store. Hi everyone, welcome back to Season 9. Wow, we completed 8 seasons. Can you believe it? Something that started as a passion project is a full-blown platform with over 100 episodes and counting. I am so excited to welcome those who've been our frequent listeners and hopefully some new listeners. So this season, uh, what are we going to talk about? Hmm. As we were reflecting about what we want to bring to this new season, we realized that now more than ever, it's important to continue to talk about mental health. We touched upon it last season and last year, if anything's been crazy. 2020 will definitely be remembered for a long time and we know that the pandemic has brought up a lot of discussion about mental health. Many of us have been impacted by quarantine, not seeing our family and friends, losing family and friends and overall uncertainty of the future of this virus. So we decided to do a whole season on mental health. That will be our underlying theme Uh, We will have guests who talk specifically about mental health, experts on it, experts of sorts. And then we will also ask our guests who may not be experts on the subject matter, but who've been impacted by it. So that's where we're at. We also know that for many immigrant cultures, mental health is often dismissed. So we want our episodes to assist in moving our society towards a collective positive change. Season 9 will still contain a variety of interesting guests. We wouldn't be immigrantly if that wasn't the case, right? But we want our conversations to connect to the general theme of mental health. Hopefully, we'll be able to break down any existing stigmas and have honest conversations about what it means to be okay. And this topic is especially important to me because I have felt at times that I'm depressed. Um, I have struggled with that. But unfortunately, the culture that I come from, we are taught early on not to display or to share our emotions with everyone and to keep them to ourselves most of the time. I want to talk about these issues. I want to talk about issues that are tabooed in our society, in our culture, because Immigrantly doesn't just Address racial disparities and socioeconomic issues that we face. I want to dig deep into problems that immigrant communities face, not just because of being immigrant, but also because of the cultures that they come from and how they deal with different issues, especially mental health. We hope these episodes can be a resource to you and your mental health journey. And if you haven't heard this from anyone else, Take a break. Put your well-being first. Do something that lifts your spirits. Invest in getting help. Your well-being is so, so, so worth it. So, to kick off Season 9, we have two incredible guests for you. Ethna Lubed and Karma Chavez are the editors of Queer and Trans Migration, Dynamics of Illegalization, Detention, and Deportation. It's a great thought-provoking collection of the personal narratives of queer and trans migrants as well as activism. If you haven't read this book, I highly, highly recommend it. There is so much power in personal storytelling and it solidified my belief in the notion that story sharing, storytelling is such a powerful tool to connect with others. And believe you me, this book is a testament to that. Now, Athena is a professor of gender and women's studies at the University of Arizona. Her research fascinates me. It focuses on the connections among queer lives, racialization processes, state immigration controls, and justice struggles. Isn't that amazing? Karma is a rhetorical critic who utilizes textual and field-based methods and studies the rhetorical practices of people marginalized within existing power struggles. Now, all of this may sound a bit confusing and difficult to grasp, but believe you me, we spoke about it all during the interview and the conversation was so beautiful and so enriching. And in keeping with the theme for season nine, we also talked about mental health and well-being, and how it is impacted by challenges that LGBTQ plus community faces within the realm of immigration enforcement. I promise this starter to season nine will blow your mind away. So let's get started. So Etna, I want to start by asking you to basically break it down to the basics. For our listeners who aren't familiar with the topic, can you explain how the migration patterns of queer trans migrants differ from their cishet counterparts?
1: First of all, we have to think about why do people migrate? And then we have to think Mm. about, is there anything different about LGBTQ migration? So U.S. Mm. people usually think people migrate because they're poor and they're seeking opportunity. And certainly people are migrating for opportunity or to fulfill their dreams, to try something new, to support their families and for those important reasons. But that's only a small part of the story, because when Mm -hmm. you look at the statistics, the poorest folks usually cannot migrate because they can't afford to. And when you look at where people come from, you can see actually the U.S. doesn't tend to admit people unless they meet a certain income threshold. So what you find instead when you look at the patterns that people are actually coming from countries where the U.S. has a history of colonizing War making, occupation, setting up factories Mm. for cheap labor, efforts to spread evangelical Christianity, and countries Mm. where the U.S. has pushed hard to open up the flow of goods and information. And by saying that, I'm kind of trying to say migration is also rooted in the dynamics of colonization, global capitalism, racial slavery, and heteropatriarchy. And that's still playing out now. And migration Mm. is also driven by climate change in which the US plays a huge role. So people absolutely migrate for their own hopes and dreams and aspirations. And we always need to ask about and honor that, but we also need to contextualize migration in relation to these larger structural inequalities and in relation to the U.S.'s role in those.
0: So, Etna, you mentioned minimum income threshold, and this is something that I was not aware of. Is there a universal threshold or does it vary by the kind of immigrants that U.S. is admitting into the country?
1: The U.S. policy is set up to admit people who are really going to serve, like creating a nation that's white, capitalist, settler, colonial, and patriarchal. So folks may end up pushed into migration or deciding to migrate, but it doesn't mean they'll actually be able to get legal status because the requirements for that are extremely specific. Um, So people fit into that in different ways. And some folks end up unable to get legal status, which makes them, you know, highly vulnerable and exploitable. And then on the other end of the spectrum, perhaps we have folks who are are able to get legal status based on having a million dollars to invest in a business and entering kind of carte blanche, right, Hmm. in that manner. But in general, for legal permanent, we also admit temporary workers on very short-term contracts who are bound in very particular ways to their employer and then have to leave. But for folks admitted to remain kind of as legal permanent residents, which is what That category is called, you have to show you meet an income threshold. And that is officially has been 125% of the poverty level. And that kind of shifts depending like each year it shifts and it also varies by state and by the size of your family but one of the things the Trump administration was doing was in fact for folks trying to move from being legal permanent residents to citizens was they actually presumed unless you could prove to the contrary that in the future they were making projections it was kind of like minority report like projecting future needs mm. and they presumed unless you could show an extraordinary level of wealth that most people cannot do, that you would likely become dependent in the future on some sort of public benefits, and they were denying people who would never have been denied in the past. So that has been used to rule out lots and lots of folks.
0: Let's talk specifically about um, queer and trans migrants and what are some of the added layers of resistance. I was shocked to find out that until 1990, it was illegal for non-heterosexual immigrants to come into the United States. It came as a shock to me. How much of immigration enforcement or immigration admittance is connected to sexuality and how much of it has evolved over the years. And I want to bring karma in,
2: into the conversation as well. We had this issue, right, with uh, 1990, prior to 1990, you couldn't actually come if you were homosexual if it was known. Hmm. But that actually has also continued in certain ways because until very recently, you couldn't have a family that counted In immigration law, Hmm. right? And so that meant that if you didn't qualify in terms of your work, you didn't have any legal means to come. Hmm. And then if we think about discrimination against LGBT folks at work, you also might not have that kind of job. And so I think there are layers and layers in which LGBTQ people have specific concerns.
0: Why do you think Immigration enforcement in the United States focuses more on deterrence. Is that true for other countries or is it true because of what Ethne was saying initially, that U.S. wants to maintain a certain kind of societal structure, which hinges on normatively gendered, able-bodied, economically privileged, white, Christian people?
1: I would say on that that this is a global pattern and the U.S. both borrows from other countries who are also practicing deterrence and it mm-hmm. is contributing to the logics used to justify that. Now, the deterrence strategies depend on a story of um you know, the border being, quote, overrun by migrants Mm. who have not received permission. That misrepresents why are people being forced into migration? Who has accountability for that? And it doesn't actually prevent migration because if folks are pushed into migration, they have to migrate. But what it does do is make sure as folks move, they're moving under conditions of jeopardy that make them highly exploitable. And if they do succeed in crossing the border, they are exploitable. And there's certainly a history that shows the US in fact relies on and expects to have that kind of exploitable population available and that it is it provides lots of benefits for U.S. people, even while those groups are demonized. But if you look at the European Union, they have been engaged in deterrence as the borders move outward and ever Mm -hmm. outward. Um, And similarly, the U.S. is building its borders through Mexico, through Central America. Those are all walled and gated following U.S. policies and funding at this point.
0: Let's talk about your book I was reading it I haven't read all of it but it's a compilation of personal narratives and it's so moving um, it's so beautifully written and even the graphics and the pictures and I can go on and on and on talking about the book what really confuses me and this question is for both of you that normally and especially in this book personal narratives are are so powerful because they evoke emotions. And on some level, we can all connect to them. They bring forth humanity of an issue, right? At the end of the day, what justice movements boil down to is what compassion, empathy for those who are marginalized. And yet everybody else is not on board. What do you think inhibits other people from having compassion to understand somebody else's challenges and somebody else's journey to the U.S.?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, thank you for the kind words about the book. And the first thing I'd say is we did want to include narrative um, and we also wanted to include critical analysis, uh, whether that was through art or through activist reflections or or academic sort of critique. Mm. And I think that that narratives are powerful, but I think narratives also can be dangerous in the sense that they can uh, create a sort of archetype of worthy or deserving mm-hmm. person on whatever cause. So if we're talking about immigration for immigration,
0: mm.
2: and that can function to, you know, actually make other people who don't fit that profile uh, have less access to uh, what they need. And so I think I'm very leery about narrative for that reason, because I think mm-hmm. often who we find people have compassion for are people who are most similar to them. And yeah. so for me, the question is more so not how we get people to feel a certain way about immigrants, but how we agitate and resist to get the structural changes that will ensure that people can migrate, that will ensure people can have what they need, regardless of how others feel. So that's where I would stand on that.
0: So how do you do that, Karma? What are some of the basic parameters or components of how to bring out empathy without playing into politics of likability?
2: Yeah, this is a really hard question. I think uh, one of the things you've seen, say, for example, with the quote unquote undocuqueer movement as it's evolved over the last Hmm. 10 years, is that initially their strategies were all about identifying as dreamers. All about saying it's not our fault. Our parents are the ones who migrated. You know we're just here, and about mm. kind of participating in a mainstream kind of LGBT U.S. citizen politics in a certain sense. But over mm. the years, their their strategies have really evolved. Where they've said, um, so Julio Salgado, for example, who did the cover art for our book and who's you know a major figure, you know he he did a series. Uh, that was a kind of companion to his original I Am Undocky queer posters, which were all over at movement uh, activities for years. Mm. He created this sort of addendum and it was called coming out of all of the shadows. And it was about critiquing detention, critiquing deportation, critiquing ice, critiquing gender norms, lumping all of that kind of together as the strategy. And so what that strategy is, is actually building broad based coalitions. Talking about broad based
0: coalitions, I want to dig deep into this because that's something that's personal to me as a Muslim woman uh, in the United States. What I've realized is that many a times when coalitions are built and when there is allyship, it comes off as performative. How do you think we can form strong allyships across different marginalized communities? Because sometimes they are working in silos, um, working in isolation of each other, or sometimes even against each other.
2: I mean, I read a lot about coalition in, in order to, I guess, pose this very question and pose the different ways that it might look. And what I mean by that is... Actual coalitions that endure over or alliances that endure over long periods of time are really difficult to build. There are very few examples of them having been done successfully. And I think this is especially so when you, exactly as you say, people are sometimes working against each other's interests. And so one of the things I always turn to is Bernice Johnson Reagan's sort of 1983 piece on coalition where she really says, you know, coalition, it's not like home, it's work, and it's the kind of work that can kill you. And so you wouldn't do it if you didn't need to do it. And I think that's, for me, always the thing, we have to get to the point where we realize that we can't exist without doing it. And that's really where I think the best coalitions get built from.
1: Karma has a fabulous book on On coalition building and queer and migrant politics that I always Mm. assign in my classes, because karma really has unraveled and thought through how could this work. So I would echo this is the most difficult work, there is no recipe. I would say in terms of the book we put together, some of what we wanted to do, and I hope we have been able to do, is include grounded examples that also emerge from very specific contexts, particular moments and particular kinds of Mm. possibilities. And so there isn't a general recipe, but from the contributors I learned, you need to look at and analyze your specific circumstances and build from there. And the second thing I might just add is that I think... We focus on, you know, the coalitions are to address immigration, the issues of migrants and marginalized citizens together, because Mm. they are all too often pitted as at one another's expense. But in fact, the structures that are causing struggle and suffering for migrants and for citizens are the same structures. And the book includes examples of folks who are working across those differences without denying them, and yet understanding them and knowing how to mobilize them and when to mobilize them, part of what we wanted this book to do is because detention and deportation is so urgent and there has not been a book that centers LGBTQ migrants, is to also create a record that shows the extraordinary work and thought that has already taken place, that offers tools for us to think about and to build on and to work with. And for that, I feel just very appreciative of all the contributors, because to me, they give us roadmaps. And they aren't just practical, they're theoretical, they combine theory and practice together in really helpful ways. But they do show the level of work and commitment that would be involved.
0: So, Ethna, this is a great point. What I also noticed in this book is academia and grassroots activists coming together to create something. It doesn't happen as much because one is more theoretical in nature and other is more practical. What were some of the challenges in bringing these two very um, different groups together? What are some of the challenges of advocacy through lens of academia?
2: It was very important for us. I mean, both Ethna and I have organizing backgrounds to varying degrees and are Mm. connected to organizing communities in addition to our academic work. And we both felt very strongly that it was really impossible to, in a full way, address these dynamics of detention, deportation, and, and processes of illegalization without bringing in very diverse voices. And so, in large part, we drew on our existing networks to populate the pages with uh, activist voices or organizer voices. And then, in terms of artists, we, you know, we just reached out, had fewer networks there. We found stuff we liked. Uh, mm-hmm. Julio helped us, uh, Salgado helped us uh, to get the word out. And in terms of challenges, I mean, I think the, the difficulty really, I think people understood what we were trying to do and they wanted to participate. The, the real difficulty is a lot of folks don't spend their days writing uh, like academics do mm. and uh, had a lot of <laughs> hangups about their writing, didn't have time to write. And so, It required a different process maybe than it would have been if it was just all academic contributors.
1: I would really just echo a lot of what Karma said. Perhaps in some respects, it was an example of trying to do a little bit of coalition building. And I think Mm. part of that was about understanding there are differences and respecting both the differences and the difficulties that would arise, not being shocked, working to find ways to make it work anyway. You Mm. know, for example, karma spent a great deal of time editing some of the works and just all the time that it took, she took it because we want this to work and so you figure it out as you go along. I think we also made a decision that we were not editing the materials for content, we felt we had hmm. selected people who have a lot of experience and knowledge to share. And it isn't hmm. our place to edit for content or point of view, but instead to just help to make clear what it is people believe needs to be said. Are you ready to co-create the world
0: we want to live in? Then I recommend join the community listening to Our Body Politic political podcast that's by and for women of color, much like Immigrantly, with everyone welcome to join the feast. The show offers a new view of the news, making politics personal with host Farai Tadea, a veteran black woman journalist who has reported all over the U.S. from Standing Rock to Air Force One and covered every presidential election from 1996. Each week, with her passion and decades of experience, Farai gets real with women you need to hear from, like Senator Tammy Duckworth, Representative Rashida Tlaib, journalist Amna Nawaz, author NK Jemison, and more. So if you want your politics news to lift you up and be useful in your daily life, then listen to Our Body Politic. You can also help them shape the show and the future. By sharing your thoughts with them, you can subscribe to Our Body Politic wherever you listen to podcasts. So I want to pivot a little here and talk about something that, Ethne, you've mentioned a few times, current power structures. And even in your book and your conversations that I have heard and listened to, you connect it, to patriarchy, you connect it to white supremacy, which to me is fascinating, because when I think about white supremacy, I think about different racial categories. But beyond that, I, at least consciously, I have not been able to establish a connection between that and And how immigration enforcement happens in America. Can you elaborate on that specifically for the LGBTQ plus community, but
1: generally speaking as well? Two things, Sadia. One would be I think it is clear that the US is structured as a white supremacist capitalist society. And if you read the works of scholars who look at colonization, for example, Hmm. they make clear that it was impossible to create a white supremacist Settler society without also imposing patriarchy, punishing people who deviated from hegemonic gender and sexual norms, Mm. literally punishing, shaming, harming. And that is kind of what we see at this point as well in terms of immigration. And so we use a heteronormativity framework, and that is a little bit different from heterosexuality. Heteronormativity Mm. is the idea that we're focused on the nation state and the systems of power. We're not focused on individual people who are doing whatever Mm -hmm. makes sense to them, right? But a heteronormative system is about building a nation that, Values, reproduction channeled into marriage among middle class people of the dominant ethnic and racial group. And within that Mm. kind of a system, you end up with all kinds of folks who aren't going to fit, who are going to be explicitly banned or they're just not going to fit into the system, or they're going to drop out of eligibility for status or protection. And LGBT folks absolutely are among those. But for example, when you're reading at the moment about Mm. um, forced sterilization in detention centers, that's part of producing a heteronormative nation, right, is forcibly sterilizing the bodies of locked up women without their consent. When you look at the so-called migration crisis and the way families were being separated at the border and and lost to one another, Mm -hmm. that would also be part of making a heteronormative nation. When you look at the criminalization of sex work and the way that is used to justify refusing status to or deporting LGBTs, folks who had no other way to earn money that's mm. also part of what we're talking about and I think in that framework we begin to see lots of connections between lots of different kinds of struggles they aren't the same struggle but they are connected around the fact a white heteronormative power structure makes all kinds of people disposable and criminalizable and we would really challenge and resist that.
0: Let's talk about that a little more. Because when we talk about the broader framework, we cannot not talk about ICE. ICE is a highly militarized um, agency that ensures immigration enforcement. And most of the time, it is used to ensure inadmissibility rather than to facilitate somebody's passage into the U.S. I want to pose this question to both of you. Do you think the movement to dismantle ICE is a realistic one? And will it be effective or are there any other solutions that you can think of?
2: It's a really important question. And I think we have to locate that question within a broader push to do things like defund the police, and things hmm. like abolish prisons. And I actually think it's really important to put all of those things in conversation because Border Patrol and ICE, uh, these are all law enforcement organizations. And right. they function like other law enforcement organizations, uh, which in my view is um, to engage in a sort of um, catch and release, manhunting kind of operation that hmm. is only to preserve the rule of law in as much as uh, it makes sense to do so within a, a framework that is actually about preserving property and preserving uh, the rights of, of white folks. And I think you see that across the board. So I think it's important to state that from the beginning. Mm. Are those pushes um, realistic? Here's the thing. It really depends. Um, a lot of people who mm. are asking or, or using the hashtag abolish ICE, for example, over the last couple years, they're not actually asking for that. They can't actually imagine it. And so I think before we even get to whether it's realistic, um, we have to get people to be able to imagine what that would actually be and to start thinking about uh, alternatives to that. And that's where I return to the prison abolition movement. Scholars uh, like Dean Spade, activists like Miriam Kaba, who provide us with a wealth of resources for thinking about What life looks like without police and what life looks like without prisons. And Mm. I think those are good resources for us to think about life without immigration enforcement as well.
0: I want to build on this. What, in your opinion, will life look like without police and ICE?
2: So I think you have to expand one step further, which is to imagine what life looks like without national borders and to Mm. imagine what life looks like if people have the freedom to move the freedom to organize their communities uh, in ways that make sense to them, to share their resources with one another, uh, and to address harm in ways that make sense to them and that don't necessarily require putting people in cages. So I think Mm -hmm. you have to start from kind of thinking about what would you want? What would you build? And, and then go from there. And these are not easy questions. People always say when you talk about prison abolition, well, what about rapists and murderers? Well, those are huh. questions we, we would have to deal with across the board, but that's not necessarily where we start. Um, abolition is a process of engaging in little practices that build the world that we want, so that when the time comes, we've already figured a lot of it out.
0: And I think it's also how America views peace or security, right? Because the idea of peace and security will have to be reconceptualized simultaneously. Mm -hmm. Does having a military state or highly militarized police give us more security? Um, No, not really, right? And I think those are the conversations that people, general public is not having. I've met so many friends and acquaintances who get really worked up about this idea of abolition because to them, it's what will happen? How will they be secure if that happens? So I think that's at the granular level where we need to have more conversations around how everybody views
2: security within their own, even like at the basic level. Don't you think? I would say 100% that's right. And that's where I think abolition is a mm-hmm. practice where we do, we build the communities that we want right now without the huge goal of dismantling borders and prisons, et cetera, even though that's what we're working for. But part of that practice is creating safety. And what safety actually means for most people is having a house, having food, having a mm-hmm. community, having health care. Uh, And knowing that if somebody Mm -hmm. does wrong to you, you can hold them to account and they will account and it doesn't require banishing them from the community. Generally, I think that's what people view as security if it gets right down to it.
1: You know, there has been quite a bit of discussion about exactly the points you and Karma are raising, which is, you know, security all too often means state security. We need to flip this. What would human security look like? And it's human security, not beginning with the rich who already have a big voice and lots of resources, but beginning in a different place from communities that are struggling. And it is true people's responses, you know, Uh, worry and concern and demanding to already know what a world like that might look like. But as Karma is pointing out, it's part of committing to engage in a practice. And it is a moment to invite people in to be part of this project, which will be beneficial for all of us. Um, Mm. And people can contribute by doing that work without We don't know the answers, but you can begin to ask the questions and begin to imagine and begin to make small changes that do add up. When you talk
0: about small changes, and this is something personal to me, I want to understand as an ally to the LGBTQ plus community, I feel like I don't even know what allyship looks like or what it means, other than reading these books or bringing somebody on my platform. But I'm sure there's so much more to allyship. Can you help me create a roadmap for how I can be an ally to the LGBTQ plus community?
2: I think allyship is a hard question across the board, right? Um Mm -hmm. I mean, if you think of, you know, your identification as a Muslim woman, the LGBT community hasn't uh, largely been a a very good ally to you. And so I think it Mm -hmm. it, it is thinking about it in this is what makes it complicated. Right. But I Mm -hmm. do think there are little things that we can all do in general. And so one is, like you said, you're reading books, get to know each other's issues I think the other Mm. things that we can do is we can actually intervene in people's expectations and norms in the kind of everyday. And so, what are the ways that cis normativity, for example, gets uh, reinscribed as if it's the only way? Um, What are the ways that we um, just embody heteronormativity sometimes without even thinking about it? And how might that do damage to other folks? And so, I think. those are some of the little everyday things that we can do. And I absolutely agree, you know, bring folks on your show, there's a huge, huge uh, population of folks who are doing queer and trans migration organizing, um, who have amazing Mm -hmm. perspectives, and, um, you know, would have a lot to learn from you, and you'd have a lot to learn from them. And so I think conversation is another big piece there, too.
0: Absolutely. And in keeping uh, with the theme for season nine, which is mental health. What do you think we are not talking about when it comes to LGBTQ plus communities' mental health issues, especially within the realm of immigration enforcement and the kind of, I I would say, trauma that they go through and the kind of um, layers of inadmissibility that they have to face? Are we talking enough about that? And how do we start those conversations?
1: I mean, I, I guess I would say, first of all, these are difficult times for everybody at this moment. So I do want to honor and acknowledge that in terms of LGBT communities, I guess I would again go back to um, circumstances are very diverse. Like it's one thing if your boyfriend brought you in on an investor visa versus if you've endured ICE detention, Right. In terms of needs, I mean, I think the practice I have seen and tried to follow is to ask people what they think would be important and to begin not from those who already have, but from folks who are very impacted by the current system, like what would be helpful. I guess Mm. I would also say, important as it is to talk about mental health, I would hope that that would always be backed up by providing concrete material assistance Mm. or strategies. As Karma said, like folks need to eat, they need healthcare, they need shelter. Um, So let's always combine mental health discussions with. How do we get basic material provisions to people who need them, beginning with the folks who are perhaps most impacted by the current system?
0: I love it, Ethna, because the perspective that you're sharing is not shared enough. (laughs) Having um, grown up in Pakistan, I've always struggled with what comes first, right? Um, as you said, basic needs for many people, many folks um, is something that we don't talk about in addition to mental health, which is extremely important.
2: In general, in in the United States, for for u s citizens, right, and unless you mm-hmm. have, uh, health insurance, generally through your employer, you're not able to take care of your mental health. That mental health is considered a luxury in this country, and this yeah. is not to say even if you're incarcerated in a state or federal prison. Not to mention almost the next rung down in one sense, if you're in an immigration detention center right now and you've been separated from your mm. family. And so, this issue in itself um, is is much bigger than the immigration question. Although I think mm. we don't even know. Uh, the consequences of what these Trump administration policies, specifically with regard to family separation, are are going to do to to a generation of kids. And and it's actually not just kids who have experienced it, but the number of parents who are trying to have conversations with their kids about how we can Mm -hmm. live in a country that allows this to happen, I think is also part of this conversation as well.
0: And it ties back to America's capitalism and access to health care as a human right versus privilege. Uh, I think one thing that has always scared me about healthcare care in America is that it's so, so temporary. And people don't realize is those who have health care don't realize that even then it's on probation in a way.
1: There are some Organizations that have brought suit against the government and they're suing over the harm caused by families who are separated and the extreme trauma that it caused to them. And the Mm. point is not a kind of liberal human rights discourse, but the point is about holding the state accountable for doing extremely Mm. serious harm to human beings and demanding that the state provide resources that people need to be able to perhaps um, rebuild their lives and get back on their feet after extreme harm that was done to them with the sanction of the state. And in that respect, I see a link between those kinds of struggles and the need for health care to simply be a, a right that every person living in this country has access to. So what will accountability look like to you? Like in your opinion, what should accountability look like? Sadia, I'm a very concrete person, right? So if these folks take a a lawsuit, you know, Hmm. it is that concrete lawsuit. It's whatever they can get um, Hmm. to the most extent possible that will help us to demand the largest changes possible and to keep building on that. So it's not an abstract thing. It's a, it's a very concrete in the moment. I, so I don't think that helps you, but that's how I think about it. What do you hope
0: this book will do when it comes to reshaping ideas around power and endurance um, for the LGBTQ plus community?
2: I think part of the work that Ethel and I have both done over a, of a long time is to Uh, really identify the ways that sexuality and gender are integrated into all sorts of systems, immigration, prison, Hmm. etc. And so I think if there's one thing that I hope my work in general does, but this book too, it's to push not just LGBT folks, but anyone who imagines themselves sort of impacted by sexuality and gender, which should be all of us, uh, To understand Mm. how these things are not just identity categories, but they're actually vectors of power that impact the way that people are able to move through the world or not move through the world. And so um, I think Mm. I hope that's not too kind of abstract, um,
1: but that's one takeaway. So two things. One is building on what karma said, you know, sexuality and gender are axes of power in every single dynamic that you can ever analyze, but we too much Mm. ignore it. So this book really wanted us to center queer and trans migrants, and to, by doing that, understand not just personal stories, but larger sexuality and gender dynamics in their interaction with racism, with capitalism, with colonialism, with migration struggles, Mm. Number two, I would say we wanted to really center and highlight the voices of folks doing this kind of work because it is often not heard about. And yet when you read that book, you find there's a really extraordinary history of activism and thought on which we can build. And I think Mm. the third thing I would say is that the mainstream tend to frame migrants and marginalized communities as causing the crisis. And Mm. this book really was about flipping the script and calling out the carceral nation state, corporations, white supremacist, anti-black settler, colonial and patriarchal logics and practices as Mm. the source of the crisis and as needing to be abolished. And that is what I hope will be the takeaway. That's so
0: wonderful and so moving. Honestly, I as I said as I was reading this book, it's just it's an eye-opener f- for me at least. Where can people find this book?
2: You can order it through your independent bookstore. You That's can right. order it through the <laughs> University of Illinois Press online. Um, you can also uh send one of us an email and we can send you a code uh to get, I think it's 30% off of the book through yep. uh june or maybe it's after that we link it up in our show notes then just for the ease
0: of you know listeners just go and click thank you so much this was so good and i'm so glad you could take time out to talk to me
1: sadia thanks for inviting us yeah thanks for having us
0: so this is it for this week Write to us and let us know what you learned from this episode. And what are your thoughts on allyship? What are your thoughts on patriarchy, white supremacy? How do you connect? And if this episode was able to help you do some soul searching, it definitely helped me rethink how I am approaching allyship and coalition building. Take care and come back next week for another incredible story.